Heavenly Father, we come before you as um, people uh, who, whether we know it or not, desperately need a touch from you. Lord, we know that um, from you, um, many were healed when you walked this earth. Many were cleansed uh, when you walked this earth. Many were relieved of oppression and possession when you walked this earth. Lord, we are um, people um, who have uh, professed our faith in you, and yet um, we still live in a broken world. We still have uh, our flesh that fights against um, our, uh, the Holy Spirit that resides in us. We still struggle. Lord, we need a touch from you this morning, this, this afternoon. Lord, would you please uh, speak to us by your word, minister to us by your spirit, and help us to love you and one another. Um, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, I will nail that afternoon eventually. <laughs> it is baked inside of my being to say this morning or good morning. Anyways, wouldn't that be wonderful if that was a big setup for uh, like this opening intro to the, the, the sermon, but it's not. Um, so I, uh, I was talking to Christine about this. I actually, I struggle sometimes with coming up with introductions. Um, but, uh, so this was like a, this was like at the 11th hour, but, um, I, uh, I've married two couples in my life. Uh, a huge honor. I mean, marrying and baptizing and some of those kind of, uh, big milestone moments are just wonderful. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, a, it's, it's such a, a blessing and honor. One of the things I said in uh, the sermon um, to one couple I married was that um, I went into marriage personally uh, with expectations, and the expectations that I went into mari- uh, marriage were, um, I mean, they were kind of, uh, they were very naive, and I came to realize that um, the things that I thought were going to be hard in marriage were way harder than I thought were, that they were going to be. They were way, way more difficult. But on the flip side, the things that I was um, looking forward to in marriage absolutely exceeded my expectations. Like, it, it was unbelievable, and it continues to, to be um, exceeding my expectations. But it got me thinking about expectations in general. Uh, we have expectations for things that we hope for, our desires, and... Oftentimes, reality doesn't quite line up with our expectations, does it? We, we think that um, if we are hoping for uh, retirement to look a certain way, if we are hoping for our children to grow up and, um, and pursue a specific profession in a kind of way, um, if we have expectations, whether, rather, um, whether big or small, and it doesn't line up with reality, we are... Um, we have a choice before us how we are going to essentially change, how we are going to manage our expectations. We can, uh, we have the choice to either uh, be upset and bitter um, if, if they don't line up the way we want, or we can adjust and, and ask the question, like, is this actually better than what I was expecting? Or it's a bit of a mixed bag, maybe, but you kind of roll with it. You see that life isn't always the way um, you envision it, but you know this is the way reality is, and I'm going to make the, the, the most of it. 
If you are joining us, um, or you've missed a week or two, we've been going through the first three chapters of Mark. Um, and right off the bat, it's, it flavors the rest of the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses uh, 14 and 15, Jesus says that he has come to proclaim the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. At hand, he is proclaiming the gospel, repent and believe in the good news. We found out that that good news isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card, but the good news, the gospel of God, is Jesus himself, his life, his death, his resurrection. Uh, Jesus has come, and he is the Messiah that has been proclaimed in the scriptures, and he has been messing with expectations. The religious elite have this idea of who the Messiah is going to be, And Jesus is, it just does not compute with them. We are uh, coming up to the end of um, kind of like a mini narrative, like a story within Mark. Chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6. And we're going to wrap up chapter 3, verse 6 today. There's like a bit of a mini narrative where Jesus, he is proclaiming the gospel. He is healing people. He is cleansing leprous Um, folk. He is casting out demons. He is also forgiving sin. He is also calling himself the bridegroom. He is doing things that are only reserved for God. And his authority and his ability continues to progressively grow. And the religious elite who know the Bible inside and out know who the Messiah is, know who the Messiah is supposed to be as Jesus' ability and authority and revelation of who he truly is um, gets progressively revealed, their antagonism and anger and frustration progressively grows. And it hits a fever pitch at the beginning of chapter 3. Take a look with me, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. By the way, just pause real quick. Chapter 2 ends with Jesus saying that he's Lord of the Sabbath. Very offensive. Very offensive. We took a look at that last week. For Jesus to say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is already rattling chains. The Sabbath is, I mean, apart from the Day of Atonement, in the Jewish world, the Sabbath is the holiest day of the year. And it happens every week. Very, 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 very holy. So for Jesus to claim authority over the Sabbath, he was putting himself in the very uh, bootstraps, or or the very boots of God, so to speak. So anyways, a bit of a background. Chapter 3, verse 1, let's get into this this really intense climax in this mini-story here. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Uh, uh, Hit pause for a quick moment. Jesus is, uh, in the last chapter, he is a blasphemer. He fraternizes with sinners. He's eating dinner with sinners. With uh, uh, another um, gospel account talks about prostitutes tax collectors as well. Uh, he's an apostate. Uh, he's a breaker of the Sabbath. He's a troublemaker who leads crowds astray. This is the, from the perspective of the religious elite. They want him gone. And they're quarreling with him. And here it's very clear 
that they are looking for an opportunity to just get him. To, to, to level charges against him, to accuse him, trial, conviction, execution. Done. Out of the picture. And Jesus here has a chance to, to, to pull the plug on his ministry. Uh, or at least postpone this uh, this healing. The thing is, it's not as if the religious elite um, had some bone to pick with people getting well. It's just that the way uh, the Sabbath uh, began to uh, be observed, and I mentioned this last week, that the command uh, was in the Bible for certain bits about uh, prohibition about work. But then the, the religious scholars, they would build rules around the rules and calling those rules the rules and so on and so forth. So there was this giant collection of rules just for the Sabbath. And one of the rules for the Sabbath is, listen, if you get hurt on the Sabbath, if it's not life-threatening, it can wait. It can wait till the Sabbath is over. So an example of this, uh, of this if you break your leg or your finger, you stub your toe and it is clearly broken. It's not going to kill you to wait. Set it on Sunday. Like, put a cast on it Sunday. Wait. Why ruin the Sabbath for a broken toe? Another thing was, if, if a house collapsed, yeah, you want to check the rubble um, for survivors, but if you find some dead bodies, like, you can't clear the dead bodies out. Wait for the Sabbath to be over. Then you can clear out the dead bodies and bury them. The Sabbath... You don't want to screw around on the Sabbath. Don't want to mess things up on the Sabbath. This man's been li- living with a withered hand his whole life. Why couldn't it wait one more day? Why do you have to heal on the Sabbath? Why are you poisoning, continuing to poison all the synagogue goers? You're working. What are you doing? They were taking issue at what was about to happen. So Jesus, he could have waited. Um, you don't really... If you're a bit of a troublemaker, whether it's right or not, you don't want to keep being a troublemaker if you can avoid it. Why couldn't you? Like, Jesus could have waited. He could have waited a day. They wouldn't have got the dirt they wanted. He could have, he could have punked them, played their own game. He could have been strategic, but Jesus does not do that. He sees pain and he sees an injustice because the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elite, the irony here is that they are trying to catch Jesus for doing good on the Sabbath, all the while conspiring to to kill him and to do evil. And right in the midst of this, forgotten in all this, is this man with a withered hand. And he's leveraged for the Pharisees. He is commodified by the Pharisees. By, by the Pharisees. His dignity isn't that of somebody who's in need of help. He's a pawn in their scheme to get Jesus absolutely crushed. No love. Complete injustice. Jesus sees the pain and he does not wait till after the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath for? It is for rest, but it is also this proclamation that God created all things and he made it good. It, it, it proclaims the very goodness of God. It takes disorder and makes it into order. And Jesus is not having it. This man has a withered hand, but maybe his spirit is withered. 
Uh, People with disabilities are often ostracized. And maybe they're not made fun of to their face, but they're gawked at. And they're whispered, uh, whispered about behind their backs. And in an agricultural society, a man with a withered hand was a man who couldn't work the fields. It, sure, I'm speculating here. It doesn't say anything about this guy's job or what he can and cannot do. But if you think for a minute, there's more withered in this man than just his hand, isn't there? And Jesus doesn't play the game. He doesn't play the game. What does he do? He sees pain and brokenness and injustice and he, and he fixes it right there on the spot. Like I mentioned, complete irony here. The Pharisees who are trying to do good and keep the law are completely missing it. And not just missing it by not doing it, but are, are doing evil. Look what uh, with me in, in verse 4. And Jesus said to the religious elite, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill, or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Jesus, um, Jesus is angry. And it's connected to the injustice that he sees, to this commodification of of a human being made in God's image that he sees, and he is angry. And friends, it is okay to be angry at injustice. It's okay to read the news and see some kind of horror in in, uh, uh, the Middle East or in Asia or in parts of Latin America or in our backyard and to be angry about it. And there's something wonderfully righteous about that. It, it, it is not something that you're indifferent to, that you're angry about. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 says, In your uh, anger, do not sin. That there's a way to be angry and not sin. Even though oftentimes anger and sin are so connected, Jesus here is completely sinless. But he is angry. And not just angry, but he is grieved in his spirit. This idea of being grieved in a spirit, it's the same grieving in his spirit that we'll see when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not just that it bothers Jesus, but he hates it. He hates what he sees. We, um, we can commodify people as well if we use people um, as a means to our ends. If we see people as uh, um, a stepping stone for promotion, or, uh, you know, if I'm friends with that person, my reputation might get a bit better, or, you know, if I, if I clown that person at a party or at a dinner, people will laugh at me, think I'm pretty funny. Whenever we disregard the dignity, inherent God-given dignity for people, we commodify them. We use them for something they were never meant to be used for. That's why uh, sexual knowing with many partners is a form of commodifying people, treating people as a means for your own pleasure. It is not a self-giving act. It is a self-taking act. We read the Bible and we see stuff like this 
And friends, let's ask the Lord, Lord, am I like the Pharisees in this? Am I commodifying people? Am I using people in any way, small or big? Am I not treating people as image bearers of the Most High? Because my guess is, as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, his reaction to us using people might very well be similar to what we see here. Anger and deeply grieved. But also it is permission for us to be angry at the things that we see, the injustices that we witness. This type of injustice um, is uh, connected to, we'll see here, their hardness of heart. We uh, see that in verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And more than intellectual objections or differing worldviews or um, even different faiths, it is, uh, it is a hard heart that is the true enemy of divine grace and, and, uh, and true faith. A hard heart. And how do we get hard hearts? Well, the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes, they knew the scriptures inside and out. They sought to keep the commands of God. The Apostle Paul talks of the Pharisees and the non-believing Jews as um, their zeal. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They genuinely want to follow God. But not... But based on their own interpretation, their own uh, not coming under the scriptures, right, but standing on top of them. The hardness of heart comes when we fail to see the heart of scripture. And what is the heart of scripture? It's always that God wants to dwell amongst his people. The opening chapters of Genesis, it's this beautiful picture of God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve are naked and unafraid and unashamed. They are completely vulnerable and yet cared for. The tabernacle, when the Israelites are going through the desert after they're uh, rescued from slavery, is this picture of God dwelling amongst his people. The temple, when it's built by King Solomon, what does it represent? God dwelling amongst his people. And now, God himself is clothed in human form in human flesh, fully God and fully man. And where does he dwell? He dwells among his people. This is the heart of the scriptures. This is the overarching story of the scriptures. But when the scriptures are looked at and, and seen as just a bunch of rules to be kept so that we may please God somehow at the end on the cosmic scale of good and bad, then we fail to see the heart of the scriptures. And our heart becomes hard. Self-righteousness comes in. And all of a sudden, we become stiff-necked. We see the Messiah in front of us. What happens? We say he is a blasphemer. He is an apostate. He is a friend of degenerates. And now, he is a Sabbath-breaker. God himself, the, the heart of Scripture, is unfolding in front of them. God is dwelling amongst his people and they're blind to it, hardness of heart. It's remarkable that the hardness of heart has set in in such a way. And what is Jesus? He is angered, but he's also grieved. God's word points to God's purposes and to God's heart. And God's, um, 
God's creation is declared good by God, but it is bent. But it's still God's creation. And when we treat God's creation, humanity as the pinnacle of that, made in his image, it grieves his heart. It angers him. Hardness of heart is faithlessness, and it always leads to some sort of injustice. So Jesus is undeterred and unwavering. The kingdom is at hand, remember. He is constantly being um, the source of healing and cleansing. And he says to this man, put out your hand, and it's healed completely. Right then and there, you'd think that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, which I'll mention in, in a brief moment, they would say, well, hold on a second. Isn't there something divine and wonderful and beautiful at play? Again, the hardness of heart that can come from self-righteousness is blinding. Look with me in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees were, um, they were, they were purists. They did not like the fact that Rome was in their land. The Herodians were, um, they were Hellenists, which means that they were deeply influenced by Rome. There was uh, a little sprinkle of Israel, a little sprinkle of Rome, and they were conspirers with the enemies. They were natural enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and yet, because of their hardness of heart, what united them? The destruction of Jesus. Verse 6, again, how they held counsel with the Herodians, how to destroy him. And thus ends this kind of mini-story but one thing we can take from this mini-story is that, that the Messiah has come and he is destroying expectations. Destroying the expectations of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the scribes, even the crowds. And this will bring us to the next section here. Um, starting in verse 7, read with me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And on one hand, there is a desperation in this crowd to touch Jesus, but a failure also to understand who he is. And the crowd in Mark is never a positive thing the crowd is always getting in Jesus' way and causing him to change plans and causing danger um, to, uh, to, uh, to, to loom. So the crowds are about to crush him. Why? For he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. See, it's interesting. It's not the crowds that recognize who Jesus is. It's not the religious establishment. Even, not even his disciples. The demons, for some reason, are the ones who declare who God really, who Jesus really is. We'll touch on that in, uh, in future weeks. But one of the things that I want to touch on in verses 7 to 12, this middle section of our reading, is that one of the things that the Messiah was uh, prophesied to do is to rescue Israel from her enemies. And at this time, the, the religious elite, they thought 
The enemies are Rome. The Messiah is going to come, draw his sword, and he is going to whoop behind. He's going to destroy these Romans. But, again, failing to see the, 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 the heart of Scripture, the Messiah was always going to save Israel from her enemies. But two things. Israel would be reconstituted. It wouldn't be ethnic Jews anymore. There's, there's hints of that throughout the Old Testament, that it wouldn't just be the Jews, it would be the Gentiles as well. And also the enemy wouldn't just be the enemy in the here and the now, but the eternal enemy. Sin and death. So we see a bit of this, just hints of it. Remember, Mark here is leading us to the cross, progressively revealing who Jesus is. And in, um, sorry, in verse, uh, in verse 8, Mark is giving this kind of like list of people, uh, of, of where they come from. He says, Jerusalem, the Galilee, and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. I'll pause here. Tyre and Sidon are not Jewish towns. They are, they're not, they are, they are not Jewish towns. The people that are there do not worship the God of the Bible. In Mark chapter 7, it's this picture of, uh, there's this, sorry, the interaction with Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman who is desperate, desperate to have her child healed. And where does she come from? She comes from Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus says to her, listen, I've come for the children of Israel. It is not appropriate for me to feed the bread to the dogs that is meant for the children. Very, very, very offensive thing to say to anybody. But this woman, she goes, even the dogs get the crumbs under the master's table. And Jesus heals a non-Jewish, non-Israelite's daughter. And he marvels at her faith. It's interesting. We will partake in communion um, later on in the service. And there's this prayer. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. You might recognize it. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. And it goes on. And that prayer is fashioned after Mark chapter 7. This picture, it's beautiful picture of, of Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, reaching out to the Gentiles. Salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. It's not just to, to kick out the Romans, it's to kick out death. And we start to see bits and pieces of that. All of a sudden, the crowd is no longer fully Jewish, is it? The next scene is, uh, is the last scene and uh, and Jesus goes up the mountain. We can read it in uh, verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And I'll hit a pause button there. Uh, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it doesn't have a whole list in, of footnotes. I mean... Crossway here puts footnotes in it. Your Bible has footnotes in it. But the Bible doesn't have a bunch of footnotes. Um, it doesn't say, hey, this is from Isaiah chapter 49. And then you can scroll back literally in a scroll and take a look at it. But throughout Mark and the other gospel writers, there's hints, there's whispers, allusions to the Old Testament. And all of a sudden here we see, we have another example. And Jesus went up on the mountain. The mountain 
whether it is from Elijah where he is battling the, the prophets of Baal, but especially when Moses climbs up the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law. The mountain is always where God's power comes, where his revelation comes. And in this case, the mountain, it's, uh, it's alluding to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and he, he witnesses God himself. He comes down, his countenance is changed. He has, he has encountered the living God. And Jesus call, goes up the mountain and he calls whom he desires. It's interesting that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. The new Moses, he is the new Moses. He is, he is the Moses uh, that is better than Moses, who goes up the mountain that is better than Sinai, and he calls people whom he desires. And what does he do? He sends them out. No, 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 he, do, he does, but he doesn't send them out right away. What does it say? And he appointed twelve so that they might be with him. And all of a sudden, he draws disciples, first and foremost, to be in communion with him, to know him. And Jesus here is drawing 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel, and we're starting to see these connections with the Old Testament, where Jesus is reconstituting Israel. No longer is Israel just Jewish people, but it will be constituted with people of all ethnicities, every tribe, every tongue. This picture of the Messiah is much bigger than what the Pharisees and the religious elite see. The salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. It's a beautiful picture of what does he do? First, he gathers his disciples. And the apostles are very unique in what they do, a very unique time in the history of of the church. But the call of discipleship is still the same. God first calls us to himself. He initiates that. He calls us to himself. And then what? Then he sends us out. And he sends us out with the same authority that he has. Verse 15. So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The very thing that Christ does himself. And this is what it means to be a disciple. First it's being, and then being sent. And it's on the initiative of Christ himself. And he draws whom he desires If you are drawn to him, it's because he desires you. In the same way he desired to heal the man with the withered hand, he desires to do good, to not do evil, to bless and not to curse, to proclaim that that this is the day of the Lord, to do away with sin and death, the eternal enemies forever. Not for a moment, forever. And what will he do? He will, he will be hung on a cross. And we, we see little, little, little bits of it here, right at the end of our section. The twelve are named, and then verse 19 it says, And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Jesus will be betrayed by one closest to him, but just like every other uh, time in history where evil tries to, to thwart the plans of God, God will use it and turn it on its head. Death tried to end Jesus, and he defeats death by dying. But does he stay dead? He does not. Three days he rises again, never to die again, and that promise of new life is ours. Friends, he is calling you to himself today. He has reconstituted Israel so that 
all of us who are not Jewish people can call Abraham their father. That can, that can uh, say that, um, that their history goes all the way back to Genesis 1 in a spiritual sense. That God is doing a mighty, mighty work in all nations, to all people. And <laughs> we retire in Sidon, and we think, man, that is not in the vicinity of Judea and Jerusalem and Galilee. We are in North America that wasn't discovered by Europe until 500 years ago. We are the Tyre and Sidon times a hundred, times a thousand. We are the far off ones. We are the ones that are like the end of the earth away from Jerusalem and Judea and the Galilee. And God's grace extends to us. And not because there's the internet or mail or whatever ships that sailed across the sea in the 1400s. It's because God's purposes can't be stopped. They can't. Hell rages against God, and what does he do? He defeats it. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful promise, and it is ours today. Friends, let us not have hard hearts. Let us not think with smugness that we are self-righteous because of what we do or what we know. We don't want the living God to grieve because of our hard-heartedness. Even worse, we don't want him to be angry. We don't want to kindle his anger against us. But friends, we don't have to taste death, do we? Because Christ tasted it for us. So let us strive by God's strength to be God's people doing God's things. And when we fail and fall, we go back to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We repent and believe. In the gospel, we keep repenting and we keep believing in the gospel. We come to the table, and it's like our marriage vow is is um, it is uh, reestablished. It's like we are we are renewing our marriage vow with Christ at the table, re- receiving Him afresh, saying, "I sin, please forgive me. I believe, help my unbelief." Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, that your purposes are to bless, that you did not wait till Sunday or even Saturday evening to heal the withered hand. You healed it on the spot. You knew that it would get you in all sorts of trouble and hot water, and you did it. You had compassion on that man with the withered hand. You knew the, the, the pain and the struggle that was going on in his withered life. What did you do? You restored. And that's what you do today. Lord, help us to be people that believe in your restoration. That you will heal, and that you will restore, and that you will mend, and that all the bentness and brokenness will be made straight and restored. Lord, help us to believe, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.